Hey, this is John Morgan. I'm the lead pastor here at Word of Life Church in the nation's capital. I want to personally thank you for taking time out to listen to our podcast today. It's our prayer that you're inspired and that your life is changed for the better while listening. So go ahead, enjoy today's message. Good morning, everybody. It's nice to be in church with you. We've come a long way. 26 hours is how long it takes. The reason it's called Down Under have you, heard of, have you heard of Australia being referenced like that, down under? It's because it is actually down under. It's under the earth, right over there. I mean, the only thing that's further under is the Antarctica. You've got down under, and then you come up over. You go past Hawaii. Yeah, it's a long way. It's a long way, but it's good. Three flights, 26 hours. What's crazy is that I was given a shopping list before I left Australia, Pastor John said, um, because they love the Aussie food, he said, can you bring some of these items? Could you just bring a few things? He said, can you bring a few, texted me, can you bring a few things over? I said, sure. So then last week I get given an email and the list was longer than my arm. I'm walking around the shops, around the grocery market, like, I mean, in every aisle. There are things I saw in the shop that I didn't know existed that were on that list. Like I was frozen at one stage because he wanted baked beans, but a special type of baked beans. And I was confused because I'm looking, I actually took a photo, it was that funny. It was like several shells of baked beans of all different types. And I'm thinking, I don't know which one to get. And people are walking past my trolley, just looking at me. Because I had all this junk food in my trolley. And they're like, we want to go where you're going. And I said, I'm going to America. <laughs> anyway, I put it all in a big bag that I checked under, checked luggage, and I got to the airport and I said to my wife, we better bring a spare bag because I could hardly pick the bag up at home. And I got to the airport to weigh it and it was 75 pound. So I had to split it into two bags. But we're here. We made it. I didn't have room for any other clothes. This is it. This is all I'm wearing. Everything else was food for the Morgan family. It's great to be here with you, seriously. Dr. Anna, Pastor John, I'm just Mr. Joel. Um, I may not be a smart man, but I know what love is. That was Forrest Gump, ladies and gentlemen. I want to show you my family. This is a picture of my family. Um, Jules and I have been married for 30 years. I truly am married. Trust me. She's there somewhere. No, really. She's right there. Stick with me online. It could be long. Been married for 30 years, got two kids. We've got three kids, really, because our daughter is married. There they are. I did that for you online. Look at that, right there. So, oh, no, it keeps disappearing. No. Okay, so you've got Jules in the middle, and then Eli is just on the left next to my wife. We've been married 30 years. Eli's 22. Harmony is our daughter. She's 24, and she's married to Nat, who's 26. He's a pro baller. He's a pro footballer. Um, not the ones with the helmets and the pads. They're, they're the crazy guys down under. They play with no helmets, no pads. They're just nuts. Um, and they've been married for a couple of years. And look at the next photo. We are expecting. So I'm becoming a granddad for the first time, ladies and gentlemen. 
Do you guys do gender reveal? Do you do a gender reveal in the US? You do that? So this is what we did at our house. They flew up to our house just to do this for us. We, they put a cake together. So they go to the doctor and they find out what uh, gender the baby's going to be and then they don't open it. They give the envelope to a baker who makes a cake that's all got white icing around it and you only find out when you put a like a wine glass or a champagne glass, you stick it into the cake and pull it out and that's how you find out what your sex is going to be. And that's where they found out and we were all together. So we're having a little baby grand boy. Isn't that cool, huh? It's exciting. Hey, listen, we've arrived on a great weekend. Uh, you will probably would have got one of these on your way in. This is the Faith Promise Card. Then we're going to ask you to fill this in at some point, either during the service or you might want to take it home and pray about it. And if you've been here for at least a year, you would have known from last year what we did here. And it's really important because I'm, I mean, I, I'm from Convoy of Hope, but I'm today speaking on behalf of all of the different mission organizations that are represented today. And everything that we give goes to, right across to all these different organizations. On your way out, we're going to give you one of these brochures. Take it with you because it explains a lot about all the different organizations we're highlighting. And it's brilliant. Let me just read this a part of this letter from our pastors, um, John and Anna. It says here, as we stand on the threshold of a new year, our hearts are filled with gratitude for the remarkable journey we've had in 2023. Our shared commitment to being the hands and feet of Jesus, extending his love and compassion across the globe, fills us with appreciation for your unwavering support of our missions projects. It goes on through there, talking about the generosity, everything to the Assemblies of God World missions, to Convoy of Hope, uh, Fellowship of Christian Athletes, Nate, with Chi Alpha, you saw um, Blaine up here before, and then also our work that we do in El Salvador, in Ghana, Peru, all these different organisations. And they're going to be all represented out there in the gym. I'm going out after the service. So come out and meet me, come and meet the others. We'll all be out there. There's some great stands out there. Um, just this last bit, it says, let us always remember that our giving is not merely a financial transaction. It reflects the depths of our hearts. It's an act of worship, a heartfelt offering, and a resolute commitment to God's mission. Yeah? And so we get to be part of that today. It happens once a year. You can give all year. You can either decide today to do it all in one go. Um, we do this thing called One Day to Feed the World, where you take one day of your annual salary and give that to missions. You might want to do that today. Maybe that's not enough. You might want to give more than that. Um, or you might want to give over the year, give a recurring gift. But whatever it is, fill this card and use that because that's what's going to help everybody. Let me show you a short video of Convoy of Hope. We do lots of things around the world. You can pretty much group it into three main areas. There is our disaster response any major disaster around the world, Convoy of Hope is involved in. We're part of it. We're right there in the Middle East right now, um, serving people right across that horrific situation, uh, all parties involved. And then uh, every other disaster, you think we're still in the Ukraine, we're still in Haiti, actually. That's 10 years old. Um, so doing all, sometimes it's long-term recovery, sometimes it's short-term. And then we do community engagement where we actually work with local churches to engage their local communities for transformation. And then global programming where we are feeding kids in our program centres. We have 38 program centres around the world and 38 different countries around the world. Um, and then we've got like 533,000 kids we're feeding every day. Our goal is a million children every day to feed. And we're empowering women, small business, uh, get them started in business so that we can empower them out of poverty and then training farmers to create a greater crop yield so that they can feed their communities and their families and bring them out of poverty. We're okay to give any person a fish. We just don't want to give grand people fish. We want to teach them 
so that you're the only person that we help and then you turn around and empower those generations and the next ones, you don't need us. Let me show you a little bit about what's going on. A lot of this is about Australia, but we do a lot of things all around the world. Take a look at this. I've always been so impacted by the Aussie spirit. Watching people help people. Our good friend Andy from Global Care always talks about mates helping mates and you never see it so much as when you see it in a disaster. One time we were in the Northern Rivers and just doing everything we could to try and find supplies for people. That was devastating. People had lost everything. And to get a call one day from a business person who just wanted to meet the needs of people who had lost everything and said, I'll just want to do white goods. Can, can we just get people fridges and freezers and washing machines? We said, sure, we can do that. We can start today. And we started doing that. And he said, I'm going to put some money in your account, Convoy account, and you just go buy stuff for people. And when you're out of money, give me a call, I'll fill it up again. And he did that five times throughout that whole disaster season, just kept filling up our account and we kept buying those things for people. Tears running down their eyes as they were just so grateful for a washing machine or a fridge where they could just do the basic necessities. Um, there are so many things that happen around our community and to know that other people have got a heart to really want to lean in is just so special. Convoy Story started about 30 years ago in Sacramento, California. Hal and Dory, the, the founders, he just started by putting grocery supplies in bags in the back of his pickup truck and delivered it around the community. And that's a 30-year-old story now. There's so much more happening right around the world. And Hal and Dory came to Australia. We caught up for breakfast and they asked us to start the work of Convoy in Australia. And we started in 2020. And it was the bushfire season. It was the first day of Convoy of Hope. And we pretty much did the same thing. Got some supplies, put it in the back of a pickup truck and went down the coast to just see who we could serve the needs that we could meet of the community. We found ourselves on the south coast of New South Wales. A whole community there had been decimated. Houses completely burnt to the ground. And I found myself sitting with this one woman, let's call her Maeve, for her own privacy sake. She started to explain the terror of being in a bushfire. And as she just began to open up, she, she lost herself in the conversation and said, look, why don't we go home and I'll make you a cuppa. And as we sat in the gutter, the realization dawned on her, I actually don't have a home anymore to offer you a cuppa. And the tears started to roll down her face. And I realized as an organization, we are here at the right time with the right people to bring the right kind of hope into the most devastating circumstance. When you're on the ground locally, you can meet needs in a real way. And I can only imagine the days ahead because there is so much need in our backyards. So much need, huh? In our backyards, in one of those flood affected regions, I was talking to a family, we actually helped to pulled everything out of their house and then we were back months later trying to bring everything back into their home and put sheetrock back in and help them restore because their house you could see through from the outside and when you were inside you could see every room in the house because it was just the stud frames left. We had to pull everything out. Two-storey home flooded to the roof and people were sitting on their rooftops waiting for helicopters to come and rescue them. Some horrific stories and bravery amongst people and so we're helping this one family trying to get back into their home and I was out the front of the yard, up the end of the driveway. Another couple had walked past from down the street and they stopped us and they said, because we were just working with a local church in the community, 
they said, what you guys are doing, this is what they said to the pastor, what you guys are doing in this community has restored our hope for the church. Isn't that beautiful? Because how many know sometimes we act in a way that people outside church, they don't want to come into church. Sometimes the church has, you know, I mean, they're not locked. The doors aren't locked, are they? But they might as well be. Sometimes the way we act towards outsiders, sometimes the way we act toward people. Some of you are online watching today because maybe it's a bit scary to walk into a building. And so we're grateful that at least you're online. It's great. And our hope is that one day you'd have the courage to be able to walk into a church again. And we want to say sorry for anybody who has been affected badly by any of us who just, we're trying. We're, we're, we're trying, right? We're, I say to people, there's no way you'd have a problem with my dad just because my brother's a jerk. But often that's what happens, right? We have a problem with God because us kids are jerks and we shouldn't because God stands all by himself, all by himself. He's good all alone. We've got to represent him and we're trying. We're getting better, aren't we? Let's keep practising. Let's keep practising. For the sake of millions, let's keep practising. I want to speak today about the righteousness of God. Um, if you've got the Bible app, version Bible app, anyone got the Bible app on their phone? Read the Bible app. Because if you go to your Bible app and then go on the right-hand side there, go to menu and then down to events, you'll see that at the top of the list is Word of Life Church DC. If you click on that, I've put my notes in here for you. And so a lot of the scriptures are there and some notes and there's some space where you can take your own notes, right? And after you've done that, if your notes are better than mine, the only deal is you've got to give me your notes at the end. Can we do that? That'd be helpful. Okay, righteousness, the righteousness of God. Um, Good sermons are not meant to be agreed with. They're meant to be wrestled with. Um, It's said that the Greeks were worried about being wrong, so they fought to be right. The Jews were worried about missing out, so they fought for relationship. And we don't want to just agree with this. We want to wrestle with this thought because I think most of us would think when we, th- when we think about righteousness, we probably think about righteousness from a perspective of morality, right and wrong, good and bad. When we think about righteousness, those who are righteous, God is righteous, Christians are righteous, and if you're unrighteous, you're a wicked person. And many times, you know, we've grown up probably, if you've been in church for long enough, especially amongst Pentecostal circles, I think, I think we're probably some of the worst, to be honest, because we think that, that righteousness is all about our behavior. And whilst that is true, it's far more profound than that. And that's what we want to look at today so that we can understand God's righteousness and how he demonstrates it because I think you'll see once we get to the end of this how important it is to have a full understanding of the righteousness of God. It's more about hospitality than immorality. Righteousness is not so much about morality as it is about hospitality. It's more about an invitation of inclusion. You know, it's far easier to call somebody out for the immorality than it is to call somebody in for a meal. We're good at that, aren't we, churches? We're good at pointing the finger at other people who are different and telling them what they're not doing instead of us just opening the door and involving people and including people and letting them come in. I mean, we all know that we weren't perfect, we heard it this morning. One of the, someone was praying. One of the guys was praying about how I think it was Jacob. Doctor Jacob was praying how it was the, the love of God. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, 
And we must never forget that so that anybody who is not yet included in Word of Life, we can give them an open invitation because while we were sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. So we're talking about righteousness and I really want to talk about it from a hospitality perspective. So, and I keep saying this, I'm going to keep saying it because I think righteousness, we keep thinking right and wrong. We think morality, but I want us to have a different thought to add to that. I'm not taking away from, I'm not saying it's not, I'm saying it is, but let's add to the morality, add because we want to do right. Now, one of the reasons we live right and we live good lives is because we're inspired by the love of God to us. I don't go to heaven, I'm not saved because I'm good, but because he saved me, I want to be good. There's a big difference. I try to live a better life because I'm so motivated by the love of Christ, what he did for me. But I want to talk about righteousness from a hospitality. And when we say hospitality, think about a long table with food all over it and there's only eight people at the table, but it seats 50. We're missing a whole lot of people. There are 42 more people that we can invite to dinner. So when we're talking about righteousness, we're thinking about who's not yet here? Who have we not yet invited? Who have we not included? Who can come to the table? Who do we know in our streets, in our neighbourhoods? Who's across the fence? Maybe in our family. Thanksgiving's coming up. Who are the people you don't want to be with at Thanksgiving? Let's be honest. We've all got them in our families. But hospitality is about inclusion. It's about bringing them in. We all come home for Thanksgiving. This is God's great Thanksgiving. He wants to throw the doors open and invite everybody home. Psalm 37 and verse 4 says, Take delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. I think a lot of us read this and we think that if we just love God, he'll give us whatever we want. He'll give you the desires of your heart. What do you desire? I want a Ferrari. If you love God, he'll give you a Ferrari. That's not what it's saying. Maybe what it's saying, you know, some some days you wake up and you find that you have these desires that you never had before. You you have good desires you never had before. Sometimes we wake up and we've got bad desires we didn't have before. I'm not talking about that. But when you wake up and you've got these good desires, like I was down the front with all these different nationalities when we're praying for the nations and I was so moved. And as I look across the different people who are standing at the front, I started to get a desire for a different country than mine. I mean, where does that come from? Maybe God gives us that. All of a sudden you have this passion for an area of life that you've never had before. Where did that come from? God gave you that desire. Those who delight themselves in the Lord, he'll give you the desires of your heart. He gives you those desires in your heart. They came from him. So if we stick close to God, we get his desires. You can't hang out with God and stay the same. He changes us. His love changes us. And that's what's beautiful about it. Hebrews chapter 12 Verse 1 to 2, it says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, it's talking about all the people, the men and women of God who have gone before us, we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, somebody say joy. The joy, the joy set before Jesus, he endured the cross. Why would he do that? Why would Jesus stay on the cross? He doesn't have to. He's God. He can sneeze and wipe us all out, but he stays. Why does God let us kill him? Why would he do that? What type of joy would be in the heart of God that he would stay on the cross for us? 
We'll come back to it. We'll come back to that. If you look in your notes on your app, hopefully you're joining me online with that. Look, open, open your phone, open your, your little Bible app there because there's some areas that you can type some answers, right? Because one of the questions I've got for you is what motivates you? What motivates you? What gets you up out of bed in the morning? And don't say your alarm clock. Like what gets you up? What gets you going? What is it that motivates you? Some people that just jump out of bed. Who, who's it? Put up your hand if you're a person that just jumps out of bed. You just jump out really. Put up your hand if you hit the snooze button like three, four, five times. We're all different, right? We're all different. But what is it that motivates you throughout the day? We want to align that with what motivates God. What motivated him to give his life for us? What motivates you? What motivates us? 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21. In the NIV, if we have a look at this together, I've got different versions in the app there for you. Because the NIV version says, God made him who had no sin. We're talking about Jesus. God made Jesus who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's, it's in English and it's a fairly poor translation. Um, that word had, God made him who had no sin, in Greek is gnosko, and it means, it means to know by intimate experience of knowledge. It's, it's a, a real intimate way. Like in, in Hebrew, it's yada, and it's the same type of thing. It's to know by intimate knowledge of experience. It's why in the old King James versions of the Bible, um, it would say things like, and Adam knew Eve, and they gave birth to a son. And you're thinking, I know lots of people, and that doesn't happen. It's because it, the know it's talking about is this intimate knowledge by experience. It's trying to give you a really deep understanding of what it means to know. So you can know that my name's Joel, but that doesn't mean you know a lot about me. You don't know how old I am. You don't know what date we got married. You don't know anything about my children except one of them got married and is having a kid. There's so much you don't know. There's so much you don't gnosko. You don't yada yet with me. And this is what we're trying to say. So God made Jesus who didn't know, who had no knowledge of intimate experience of sin to be sin for us, which is a bad translation. In the, in the New Living Translation, it says to be an offering for our sin, which is more correct. So God made Jesus, who had no intimate knowledge of sin, no intimate knowledge or experience of sin, he made him an offering of sin so that in him, through his experience on earth, we might have a greater understanding and intimate knowledge of his righteousness. The best version, I've got it there in your app, is the, uh, the Catholic Septuagint, which says Christ was without sin, but for our sake God made him share, gnosko, share with intimate knowledge of experience our sin in order that in union with him we might share the righteousness of God. So this is what it's saying. God, who made us and loved us so much, though we left him and broke his heart, he came to earth as one of us called the Christ and Jesus shared life with us and understood intimately our sufferings and our weaknesses. Though he did not sin, he was tempted in all points possible yet without sin, but he had enough knowledge and experience intimately to understand us so that when we would get to know him and understand him, we could share in his righteousness. That's what that verse is trying to say. And we're talking about the righteousness of God. So what is this righteousness that we have become or that we share? And many would say, well, righteousness is when we are made right with God. And sure, I agree, but it's far more profound than that. 
It's not just being made right or living right or doing right. What is the righteousness of God? Let's look at the next one. In uh, Romans 3.25, it says, God presented Christ as a sacrifice for atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate, someone say demonstrate. How do you demonstrate righteousness? He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he left the sins committed beforehand in ages past unpunished. Christ, God presented Christ as a sacrifice for our sins. In the New English Translation, in the NET, I've got it there in your app. It says, God publicly displayed him at his death as the mercy seat accessible through faith. The mercy seat. Have you heard of that word before, mercy seat? Do you remember where that's from? Have you ever, anyone ever watched Raiders of the Lost Ark? Come on. Raiders, I love that movie and all the subsequent ones. Thank you for being honest. Raiders of the Lost Ark. In Raiders of the Lost Ark, there's this ark, right? The Ark of the Covenant that was captured, was uh, stolen from the Israelites. I don't know where it is now. Um, but anyway, in this movie, this ark, we know that what's inside it because we've read the scriptures. Inside, if you were to lift the lid, but you wouldn't, would you? There is no way. If you've watched Raiders of the Last Ark, you don't lift the lid. That's dangerous because what happens when you lift the lid? Lightning light comes out, destroys everybody that looks at it. So you don't lift the lid. But if you did to see what was inside, you would find a jar of manna where God miraculously fed the Israelites for all those years. You would see the staff of Aaron that was budded to show that he was the true leader. And you see the two stone tablets of the Ten Commandments. That was all inside the ark, the box, the gold box. And if you lifted it, you wouldn't lift it though, would you? But if you did lift it, that's what's inside. The lid, that lid, you know what that lid's called? That's called the mercy seat. Because when they would sacrifice animals for the shedding of blood in order for the forgiveness of sins, that went down on the mercy seat, on the cover of the ark and dribbled over the sides of it in order to go down, out and around the box. Well, inside is the law. And the law in Romans, the book of Romans, the law produces death. So death inside, mercy on top, to always give us the picture that mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy is always on top of judgment. We should have known that during COVID. That would have helped us a lot, wouldn't it? If we had to be more merciful instead of judgy throughout COVID, that would have helped. It ought to inspire us towards the next pandemic or the next crisis or the next war, that we don't choose sides. We love people because God loves all. Mercy triumphs over. So that verse is saying God publicly displayed Jesus at his death as the mercy seat because God's nature is always to have mercy over judgment. Such is his nature. Let's wrap all this together. What's all this saying? How do you demonstrate righteousness? Because God demonstrates his righteousness. How do we demonstrate it? Well, just by being a good person. Sure, that works. But is that all? What does it mean? If we, if we knew that in Hebrew, the word righteousness is tzedak. It's T-Z-E-D-A-K or sometimes A-Q, tzedak. And tzedak uh, is made up of three letters, sadi, dalet, kof. In, in the ancient Hebrew, because they came out of Egypt, all of the language is written in hieroglyphics. So every letter of the alphabet is a picture that tells a story. And that's how they would 
do their alphabets and how they do their language. So um, Sadak, righteousness, Sadak is Sadi Dalat Kof. Sadi is a picture of a fish hook with bait on it. So it's talking about whatever draws you in, whatever lures you, whatever that desire that grabs you and draws you in. That's Sadi. Dalit is a picture of a door open where you walk through. And Kof is a picture of the back of the head. So if I stand before you and I'm a little bit embarrassed or inferior, intimidated by you, I don't stand tall and strong and eye to eye. I'm a little bit embarrassed, so I bow my head and you see the back of my head. Righteousness is when you have a strong desire to open the door and make a way for those who are vulnerable. That's what righteousness means in Hebrew. That's what they understood it to mean, which is why every time you read about righteousness in the scriptures, it's always paralleled and connected with giving alms to the poor, serving the brokenhearted, helping the alien, the widow, the orphan. It's always about bringing people in and including them. So when Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, when you're offering your acts of righteousness in the temple, your acts of righteousness is actually tzedakah. When you are giving tzedakah, if you talk to a Jewish person today, I was doing, I talked to someone just recently who said, when we talk about tithes and offerings, when Dr. Jacob was up here sharing around, come on, let's give, she said, in synagogue, the rabbi would say, let's give tzedakah. We're about to do tzedakah. So that's what they knew that. They knew that we're about to give our offering. We're about to do that. It's acts of righteousness because it's going to the poor. It's to help the vulnerable. It's to get those who are marginalized included. That's what righteousness means. Righteousness is when my deepest desire is to open the door and make a way for those who are poor and vulnerable. Righteousness is not just what you are. It's also what you do. In fact, you cannot claim to be righteous without doing righteousness. So it's not walking around living the good life and being a good person. It's how much we practice sadaka. So when I am, when I see someone who is less fortunate than me, do I have the desire to open a door and make a way for them? Because that's practicing righteousness. How do I demonstrate my righteousness? Not by being a holy person, but by being an active person in my community by making sure that I help people and that I lend a hand and that I offer dignity and value, that I love people and that I, I, I place comfort toward people. If I have the means to do so, I serve. That's what it means to practice, to demonstrate righteousness. That's what God does with us. You think about Jesus. You read throughout the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John went to bed with their bridges on. Where did that come from? Been hanging around you too long. You, think, you read through the Gospels and you, and you can see so clearly how Jesus was always out and about in community and what was he doing? He was demonstrating the righteousness of God. And what did that look like? It didn't look like what the other Pharisees were doing, wearing their long robes and their long phylacteries and their long tassels and walking around wanting to be greeted in the marketplaces and have everyone call them pastor and doctor and sir and reverend and rabbi. Jesus had plenty to say about that. Don't be walking around like everyone's trying to greet you and you want the best seats in the house. He said, no, 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 no. That's not how you do righteousness. That's not how you demonstrate righteousness. Jesus would always demonstrate it by welcoming those who were rejected. One time he's with a whole bunch of kids who want to come up. Jesus must have lived this way because a whole lot of kids who wouldn't normally go to a rabbi 
but he must have lived, he must have daily, he must have lived in such a way that kids felt comfortable around him. One day, a whole bunch of kids come up around him and they're touching him, they're pulling on him and they're loving him and hanging out and Jesus is hanging out and the disciples who are not getting it yet try to shoo them away and Jesus says, what are you doing? Don't shoo them away. The kingdom belongs to such as these. Who's he talking about? Who are these? People who are marginalised, people who mean nothing, people who we don't want to associate with. When we go to Thanksgiving and don't want to sit with those people, they're the ones Jesus loves. <laughs> yeah, amen now. What about amen on Thanksgiving? <laughs> Look, 1 John chapter 4, verse 19. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. Wow. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command, anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. Sometimes family are the hardest ones to love, aren't they? Gee, and just in case that wasn't strong enough, James chapter 2, verse 17. You see, faith by itself isn't enough. It's not enough. I have faith. I have faith. We sang about it today. I have faith. It's not enough, people. Unless it produces good deeds, sadaka, it's dead and useless. Oh, wow. We demonstrate righteousness. We don't just say, I'm a believer. I have faith. I go to church. We demonstrate righteousness. So let's go back to Hebrews chapter 12. Verse 2, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith, for the joy set before him, the joy. He stays on the cross. He lets us kill him. Why? What was the joy? Sadaka. What does that mean? God's deepest joy was to open the door and make a way for all of us who were estranged and vulnerable. We were separate from him. That's why he stayed there. He endured the embarrassment, the humiliation, the hostility because the greater reward was to open a door and make a way for all humanity, all people, everybody, every race, every language, every person, whether you have a house or not, whether you live on a good street, a bad street, or whether you're homeless. He invites us all. Whether you're wealthy or in abject poverty, whether you're healthy or you're that disgusting with disease that people don't want to be anywhere near you. It's not right to touch a leper back in those days. Jesus was not afraid. It's the hospitality of God to invite us all, to bring us close. We were poor, blind, naked and ashamed and God was in Christ the whole time reconciling the whole world to himself. Jesus does this all the time. You read, there's so many stories about him doing this. There's this one time that he's talking with a, a group of people. Jesus didn't just teach in church. He'd be out and about in the car parks and wandering around the street. I don't think they had car parks back then, but just imagine they did. Think about Starbucks today. Where would Jesus be? He'd be here today, but guess where he'd be this afternoon or tomorrow? On Monday, he'd be in the car park at Starbucks and he'd be teaching and just anybody who's out getting a coffee or even people who don't like coffee, they'd all be there. They're just hanging out. And one time Jesus was out teaching and there's a crowd gathered around him and the Pharisees who did not practice righteousness, they didn't demonstrate it, they were 
They were st st stuffy and looked like they'd been sucking on lemons. They were just horrible people, truly. And they find this woman caught in the act of adultery and they bring her into this crowd where Jesus is teaching people and they throw her down on the ground. And they say out loud in front of everybody, this woman was caught in the very act of adultery. The law says that you should stone such a woman. What do you say? Do you remember that phrase, what do you say? The law says, but what do you say? If you read throughout the, the Gospels, especially the Beatitudes, remember the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus gives his first sermon? There are many times where Jesus says things like, you've heard that it was said in the law, but I say to you. You've heard that it was said an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, but I say to you. You've heard that it was said about divorce, but I say. You've heard that it said you can love your, love your friend, but hate your enemy, but I say. You've heard that it was said, but I say to you. What was Jesus doing? He was giving us a new interpretation of Torah. Because what a lot of the rabbis in that day, a lot of the, the Pharisees and Sadducees, the Fadducees, the wouldn't sees and couldn't sees, all those people, what they were doing in that day was they would use the law to beat people up. They would use the law to keep people out. There were more people outside church than inside church. Does that sound like any day that we live in? Because the law, they used the law to punish people and to condemn people and to judge people. And so Jesus was giving the law and reinterpreting it. He was allowed to do that because he was a rabbi. And so he would say things like, you've heard that it was said, but I say. And they've heard him say this. So they're trying to get back at him. So they say, this woman has been caught in adultery. The law says, what do you say? How are you going to interpret this one? Interpret your way out of this one, Jesus. And so he bends down in the dirt and he starts scribbling. And they're wanting an answer. They're wanting an answer. So he finally stands back up and he says, okay, whoever has never sinned can throw the first rock. And it says starting with the oldest to the youngest, they dropped their rocks and walked away. Because those of us who are older, we've lived a lot more sin, right? We know. So they left, everyone left, all the accusers. There's, there's now no accusers left. Jesus bends down and graciously, lovingly, caringly grabs this woman by the hand and says, where are all your accusers? And I can imagine her looking around at the crowd. There's only Jesus and the people he was teaching. All the accusers are gone and she says, none, Lord. They're all gone. And he says, well, neither do I condemn you. You know what's most powerful about this story? Because they didn't care about the woman. They were using her to get to Jesus. The law says that a woman should be stoned to death if she commits adultery. In fact, it says that the man and the woman, but where's the man? She, he's probably there with a rock because this whole thing was set up to frame this woman, to frame Jesus. So they're taking advantage of a vulnerable woman and they don't care about her. It's all about getting to Jesus. So the law does say that you should stone a man or a woman who has committed adultery. Do you know what the law also says in Leviticus? That you can only stone a person to death with two or more witnesses. How many witnesses are there now? They're all gone. Jesus masterfully removes every witness. By their own guilt and shame, they all leave and she's left with no accusers. And he sets her free. That's how you demonstrate righteousness. We don't condemn people. We don't judge people. 
We open a door and we make a way for them. There's this other time Jesus is walking along again another day. He's teaching some people and all of a sudden this um, synagogue ruler comes up. His name's Jairus and he's, Jairus's daughter is sick. She's really, really sick, like dying sick type thing. And so he comes up and begs Jesus, can you please come with me and heal my daughter? And Jesus says, sure. So this whole crowd now with Jairus are all heading towards Jairus's home to heal Jairus's daughter. And as they're going, something happens right here. There's another story, but we'll, we'll come back to this. Over here, just as they're about to get to the house, the, the attendants, Jairus's attendants come up to Jairus and they say, don't, don't bother the teacher anymore. The little girl is dead. Your daughter has died. Don't bother the teacher. Ever wondered about that phrase? Like, why would, why would they say that? I mean, Jesus can raise people from the dead. Why would they say, don't bother the teacher anymore? Your girl is dead. Because in rabbinical law, Jesus is a rabbi. If he enters the house of a dead person, let alone touch a dead person, he is now unclean. And if he's unclean, he's unclean for seven days before he goes through the ceremonial process of becoming clean again. Seven days as a rabbi means he can't do any of his practices. He can't go to synagogue, can't go to church, he can't be in any of those meetings because he's unclean. That's why the the attendants say, don't bother him anymore. The little girl is dead. She's unclean. But I can imagine this whole crowd like, it doesn't matter. We're all all ready to go. Let's go. Let's go. And the attendants would be so confused because they didn't see what happened in the middle. Just hear another story. You look at it later in John. Another little story. So, So Jesus is here, crowd of people, Jairus, can you heal my daughter? They're on their way to heal. Before the attendants come up, right here, this woman who's been bleeding for 38, no, for 12 years, She's had a period for 12 years, which means she's unclean in rabbinical law. She's unclean, which means she has to yell out every day, unclean, unclean. So if you're, you're about to walk up and give someone a hug at church, yeah, hey, it's so good to see you, Anna. I better not use you because we're talking about unclean. John, <laughs> so good to see you. And we're about to shake hands. If John's unclean, he has to yell out, unclean, unclean, so that I, oh, I nearly touched him and became unclean. It's horrible when you're an unclean person. You have to stay out. You have to let everybody know that you're unclean so that you don't make them unclean. So this woman who is unclean, crowd, Jairus, Jesus, they're going to the little girl's house to heal her. And this woman thinks to herself, if I can just get through the crowd and if I can just touch the hem of the garment of Jesus, I'll be made well. And she's healed. And Jesus stopped in this crowd. He says, who touched me? And I always read it with this tone. Who touched me? Who touched me? This is a joke. Who touched me? And this woman finally comes forward trembling and she tells her story. And I always thought, why would Jesus embarrass her like that? Why would you put so much shame on her? She's been healed. Just let her go on her way and be healed. It's so embarrassing to have to tell an unclean story. Why would you do that, Jesus? And when I understood what was happening, I don't reckon Jesus yelled out, who touched me? I reckon he was saying, who touched me? Who, who, it's okay, it's okay. I just need to explain things for a minute. Who, just, who was it? It's okay. Don't be afraid. Come forward, come forward. Who touched me? And this woman comes forward. He puts so much grace on her and he loves her. And he says, you, your faith has healed you. And why was it important for everybody in that crowd to know that an unclean woman had touched Jesus so that the whole crowd would know that Jesus is now unclean? Why is that important? Because the attendant is already on his way. 
And no one knows except Jesus. And the attendant is already on his way to say, the girl is dead, you can't come because it's an unclean situation. And the whole crowd now is like, it doesn't matter. He's already unclean. It doesn't matter anymore. He can go because he's already unclean. You see what Jesus did? He becomes unclean for us to make us whole. My prayer is that as you read through Scripture, you would see this demonstration of righteousness on every page. God is not a judge. He's not a judging, angry God that's trying to slap us upside the head. He's a loving, gracious God. He's gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. He wants to include us. Righteousness, to demonstrate it, is an invitation of inclusion. When you read the very last chapter of the Bible, the last book, it's all about a great big wedding in heaven in the sky where everyone can be included. Everyone gets a seat. It's hospitality. It's please come, everybody, please come. You're all welcome. That's what this is about, Mission Sunday. It's about us giving so that all these different mission organizations that are represented can demonstrate righteousness. We can all go into these communities here in DC, all the way out across America and around the globe. There's different things that we're going to show you out in the gym. It's so that we can do this. When we give to these organizations, they can go out and they can open a door and make a way for those people who are lost, for those who are marginalized, for those who society keeps separate. We can say yes. That's what we're doing today. If you're here in the room online and you want to say yes to Jesus, is your heart warmed yet? Are you starting to realize that God's not angry with you, that he loves you? He just wants you to say yes. I've always thought about it like this. You know, when I, I didn't grow up in a Christian home. I didn't go to church when I was young. And so when I came to faith in a public high school, when I came to faith, I'd already lived only 14 years of doing bad stuff. Can you imagine doing that for 80 years? You know, the longer you live, you just keep walking away further and further away from God. And the further and further away you get, the more you realize I've got so far to get back. And I keep walking away and I've got so far to get back. And that's shame and that guilt makes it harder to turn because you just think to yourself, I've got so far to get back. But if you talk to any of us in this room who've experienced the love and the grace of Jesus, we'll all tell you the same thing. The moment I had the courage to turn around and start that long walk home, that's when I realized that I don't have to go far because God was right here. He met me right here where I turned around. You don't have to go far. You just have to make a choice to turn back to him. Say yes to God because he's already said yes to you. He's already said yes. And any person here or online, you want to say yes to God, just say that right now in your heart. Just say yes.